Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Providentially, we are talking about the Good Shepherd, and we need a Good Shepherd, don't we? In times of rejoicing and in times of loss and weeping. So I have a question this morning. What's so good about the Good Shepherd? Why is the Good Shepherd good? As most of you know, I grew up on the largest commercial pig farm in the state of Florida. Our farm, our family farm, produced upwards of 10,000 pigs a year in our heyday. And I did that for the first eight years of my adult life. I was a full-time farmer, grew up on the farm. That's what I did. You know, in all my years of earning an income, I've always done my own taxes, even though I have a couple of uh, CPAs in my family. I still, maybe it's a pride thing, I still do my own taxes. And the very first time I did my taxes, a long time ago, my dad, who also has always done his own taxes, helped me do it. And we got to the box on the tax form that said occupation. I said, Dad, what do I write down here? And he said, herdsman. And I said, herdsman? You've never called me a herdsman before. before. And he says, well, you're a young man who tends my herd. You are a herdsman. So I wrote down herdsman, and that's what I wrote down on my tax form for the next decade as I was a full-time herdsman. I don't know if you notice in the compound word herdsman, there is a common word in the word shepherd, right? Herd. A shepherd is someone who herds shep. Shep. I was someone who herded pigs, so I guess you could call me a piggard. No, don't call me a piggard. I'll just stick with herdsman. Thank you very much. But as a full-time professional herdsman of a flock who has literally cared for hundreds of thousands of animals, I know a thing or two personally about animal husbandry, about tending livestock. And so many of the things that Jesus uses here metaphorically for what a shepherd does and who a shepherd is are very personal for me. And again, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's talking about himself as the shepherd and his followers, his disciples, as the sheep. This is not a new biblical metaphor introduced by Jesus, but this metaphor of a shepherd and the sheep is all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament, a godly man was symbolically representative or or even actually a shepherd. You go to the very first beginning, Genesis chapter 4, and Adam and Eve's son Abel is said to be a keeper of sheep. He was the one that offered the acceptable sacrifice to God. You move forward and you have Jacob, who was the father of the nation of Israel. He was a shepherd, as was his son Joseph. Moses was keeping the flock in Midian whenever he heard God call him from the burning bush. And of course, the shepherd of all shepherds is David, because not only was he an actual keeper of sheep, but he was the shepherd king who would lead the the children of Israel as their righteous king. But beyond that, he was the one through whom was promised the Messiah to come, who would be the shepherd of our souls forever. Now, last week I told you when this metaphor that Jesus introduced about shepherds and sheep and sheepfolds, that when Jesus introduced it, he was drawing a contrast. He was drawing a contrast between the false shepherds over Israel in his day and himself. In the last section we looked at, he referred to those religious leaders as thieves and robbers. In our passage today, he's going to talk about them as hired hands, as hirelings. Again, he's drawing a contrast. 
those false shepherds of his day who had authority and religious position over the people of Israel, they were only in it for themselves. They were false shepherds. They were hard-hearted. They were only in it for what they could get out of it kind of shepherds. And so here in our passage, again, he puts on display this contrast, and he shows us what all is good about the good shepherd. So look with me in your Bible or on your Bible study outline as I read John 10, verses 11 through 12 through 21. This is the inspired word of God. Jesus speaking says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus was not for the faint of heart. Whatever you think of Jesus, and I hope that we've seen this in our view of John's presentation of Jesus uh, in this gospel account. He is bold, he is provocative, and he is even sometimes controversial in what he says and how he says it. He could not be interpreted as just kind of this vaguely spiritual, religious guru who speaks in these platitudes. No, he made some daring and audacious claims about himself. Some people hated him for those claims, but others worshipped him. And we see in the last three verses of our passage that there was a division, uh, literally a schisma, a schism, because of what Jesus was saying. Some thought he was demonic. Others said he is divine. Now, this self-identification of Jesus as the good shepherd, it elicited a strong reaction from those he was speaking to and those who were listening. He was not the kind of person you could just brush aside. He was not the kind of person that you could just have a neutral opinion about. No, he was provocative. You couldn't just say, oh, yeah, I've heard Jesus, great communicator, fun with kids. I respect him. You either hated him or you loved him. You either said he was demonic or divine. Today, there are those who attempt to land in some type of third category that was non-existent in Jesus' day. There are some who attempt to say, yeah, he he was a good man, a prophet, a teacher, an example of true love and demonstrating compassion for the downtrodden. He was all those things, but he was not just those things. To do so is to discount the extensive and numerous claims that Jesus makes that he is divine, that he is God in human flesh. 
Now, it's important to point out that in this passage, we have the fourth occasion of seven when Jesus says, I am, and then he gives some type of uh, essential character or quality about who he is. But we know that phrase, I am, that term, it's a, it's a claim of deity. So far, we've seen that he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Last week, we saw where he said, I am the door of the sheep. This week, I am the good shepherd. We'll see in the future that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the true vine. But again, with each of these seven I am statements, he's not only revealing an essential aspect of his character and nature, but he's also making a claim to be God. And the Hebrew people of his day would have been very familiar with it. Again, in Greek, it's ego eimi. It was called the tetragrammaton in Hebrew. It was the personal designation of God as Yahweh. I am. And so each time he makes one of these statements, he is making a claim of deity. You see, Jesus has not left open the option that he's just a good teacher and a moral leader and example of love. He was either delusional or he was divine. He was either crazy or he is the Christ. There is no third option. Now, I mentioned last week that sometimes our mental image of a shepherd that he introduced last week is this kind of idyllic view that this man in a long flowing robe with flowing hair in the wind and a big staff that looks like a giant question mark just kind of standing there. That's our idea of a shepherd. But, but a shepherd was really a rough and tumble guy. A shepherd in the first century was really a, a man's man. D.A. Carson, a commentator I read every week, I had this to say about first century shepherds. He said, many are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs. And the English adjective good does nothing to dissuade us from these misconceptions. But the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. Carson mentions that adjective good, and interestingly, the word order in the Greek Bible actually has the adjective after shepherd. He says, I am the shepherd, the good one which is pretty interesting to think about, that this is the identification Jesus makes. But what is this word good? There are two primary words used in the New Testament for good. One is agathos, which just simply means morally good or ethically good. And another one is kalos, which means beautiful, attractive, noble. And the one that Jesus uses here is kalos. He is a beautiful shepherd. He's an attractive shepherd. He's a noble and precious shepherd, Jesus the shepherd, the good one. Now, a shepherd had a mix of qualities that we might say some hard qualities, as D.A. Carson mentioned, and also some soft qualities, some hard virtues and some soft virtues. A shepherd had to be tough. He had to be brave. He had to be daring. He had to be courageous. You may remember the instance whenever David volunteered his services to King Saul, and he told him, I will fight the Philistine champion Goliath. And Saul said, you, a little boy, what, what credentials do you have to go against the ultimate fighting cha- champion of the Philistines? What did David say? Notice what he said in 1 Samuel 17. He said, your servant has been 
keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. That's a man's man. Lions, bears, tigers. Oh my. That's what David's saying here. I went after those wild beasts and I killed them. But not only is a shepherd daring, courageous, brave, but a shepherd was also necessarily tender and compassionate. If a sheep was wounded or was weak or was sick, this is animal husbandry 101. You take care of the weak animal. You nurse it back to health. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, he's predicting the coming Messiah, the descendant of the shepherd king David. Notice what he says about this future shepherd over the souls of men. He says this in Isaiah 40, 11. He, the Messiah, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So again, a shepherd had these diverse excellencies, some hard virtues, some soft virtues. He protects and he provides. He corrects and he carries. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is both Savior and Lord. Jesus is the good shepherd. So what's so good about him? From our passage, I want to point out three things that's good, good about the good shepherd. The number, first one is this. Number one, the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Fantastic. And I think sometimes because we've grown around this reality, grown up around it, we sometimes forget and the, the powerfulness of it just kind of washes over us. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He says that in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in a general sense, shepherds did put their lives, their selves in harm's way as a means of protecting the sheep. Like David said to Saul, he put himself in harm's way for the flock. He gave his life away for the well-being, for the care, for his time for the flock. But in verses 12 and 13, as we read a moment ago, Jesus contrasts the shepherd with the hired hands. And again, those hired hands represent the false shepherds of Jesus's day. Look again at verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I can tell you on our farm, we always had one or two hired hands that we had employed. It's tough to find people who want to work on a pig farm, I'll just tell you that. But for necessity, we always had a couple of hired hands. Let me tell you, the hired hands had no interest in the herd like my dad's three sons. It was just a job for them. It was just punching a clock. It was just showing up and getting a paycheck. But my dad's three sons recognized this is our family's livelihood. This sustains our household. This is our family's legacy. So there was an intention and a care for the herd because, well, we own the herd. And Jesus has a care for the sheep. Why? Because he knows he will purchase the sheep with his own blood. He owns them. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. 
But it's clear when Jesus says he lays down his life, he's not just talking about putting himself in harm's way. He's not just even talking about extending energy on behalf of the sheep. No, he's referring to his sacrificial death on the cross for the sheep. He's looking forward to that eventual reality. How do we know that? Because of the repetition in this short passage. Notice a few of these verses in your Bible. Verse 11, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Jesus is, again, pointing forward to his sacrificial death on the cross when he will lay down his life for the, for the sheep. And friends, this is the overarching purpose and theme of Jesus' life. From the very beginning, if you'll remember, even when Mary was pregnant with infant Jesus in her womb, uh, Joseph is confused, who would eventually become the adopted father of Jesus. And so what happens? An angel comes and visits Joseph. And what does the angel say to Joseph even while his fiance is pregnant with Mary? With with Jesus. Look at Matthew 121. The angel instructs Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, this was the purpose for which Christ had come, to die, to lay down his life, to save his people from their sins. Even at the end of his life, as Jesus is instituting this very meal, that we're going to share today. Jesus gave the reason why he told us to always observe this meal. Why? Look what he said in Matthew 26. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said to them, take, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus instruct us to have this meal of remembrance so that we would always think about the central purpose of his life, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sheep. He gave his life for the sheep. Now, in our passage, Jesus reveals a couple of truths about this giving of his life that are important to point out. First of all, I want you to take notice of this. His giving of his life for the sheep, it was voluntary. It was voluntary. He says in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus is emphasizing here the voluntary nature of his sacrificial death. What this means, friends, is Jesus was not forced into this. He was not coerced into this by a manipulative father. You really need to do this, Jesus. He said, I, take it, I lay it down of my own accord. It is a voluntary. It's not that he was a victim even of some messianic fervor in the Passover festival in that first century celebration in Jerusalem. It's not that he was just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not that he, the Jews just happened to hand him over to Pilate and Pilate happened to hand him over to the torturers who would hang him on a cross. No, Jesus was in full control and determination about every aspect of the timetable of his death, burial, and resurrection. He was sovereignly, purposefully, 
intentionally and voluntarily going to the cross. And friend, Jesus' life would not be taken from him one millisecond outside of when he determined it was going to happen. In fact, throughout the gospel accounts, we find this happen many, many occasions. I know some of you watch the Chosen series, and a couple of episodes ago it was when Jesus made his profound declaration of deity in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Do you remember what the members of his hometown wanted to do to him? They took him out to the edge of town, to a cliff, and they were going to throw him off the cliff and kill him. Did they? Because it wasn't his time yet. And the text says he walked away through the midst of it. Fantastic. You're not going to take my life before it's time. At the end of John chapter 8, we saw a couple of months ago, he said those famous words, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do? They picked up stones to stone it, stone him. And Jesus uh, hid himself, John says, and went away. And even at the end of this chapter, uh, we're looking at today, chapter 10. If you look down at verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Why couldn't they catch Jesus? Because he was in control. He was functioning according to a divine timetable. They would not take his life from him as such. He was going to voluntarily and purposefully give it. This is a profound feature of the Lord giving his life for the sheep. He did it in a voluntary way. Here's the other thing Jesus points out here. His giving of his life was not only voluntary, it was vicarious. It was vicarious. So we've probably heard that word. If you have an overzealous dad as his son plays a sport, you may hear people say, oh, he's living vicariously through his son. It means in the place of, as a substitute. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. It is a vicarious sacrifice in our place as our substitute. He accepted the judgment, the punishment, the wrath we deserved. The famous Swiss theologian Karl Barth was once asked, asked this question, what is the most important word in the Bible? You know what he said? He gave the Greek word huper. Huper, uh, transliterated H-U-P-E-R. What huper means is it's the word that's translated for in our passage. I lay down my life, huper, the sheep, for the sheep. Why? Because he does it on behalf of us. He does it in the place of us. And friends, this underlines the central truth of the Christian faith. It's the truth that was recovered during the Reformation 500 years ago, that we are saved not based upon any works that we can do, not any addendums or additions to the gospel, not any creeds that we must keep, but we are saved by the work of Jesus alone. It's called solus Christus, by Christ alone, his work, nothing that we can do. We don't save ourselves because we develop this spiritual willpower. We don't pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. No, he laid down his life for the sheep. We are saved wholly and completely by the work of Jesus. Now, again, this voluntary and this vicarious death of Jesus, it was all according to the plan and the purpose of God the Father. 
He says in verse 18, this charge of a voluntary death and a vicarious death, this charge I received from my father. Friends, the plan of redemption was formed in the mind of God, the triune God, before the foundation of the world. We can't comprehend that. Our finite, minuscule minds can't possibly understand the infinite, eternal mind of the triune God. But God had determined to display the incredible diversity of traits and excellencies, not only through creation, which shows his power and his might, but through the redemption of rebellious sinners that shows his compassion and his grace. What a God we have, a God of gracious salvation. So what's good about the good shepherd? First of all, he gives his life for who pair in the place of his sheep. Here's the second thing that's good about the good shepherd. The good shepherd gathers together his sheep. The good shepherd gathers together his sheep. Notice again, verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, I must tell you, this one verse has spun off some very strange theories and ideas, uh, frankly, heretical ideas. Some take this phrase, other sheep, to refer to, get this, extraterrestrials. That there are faraway planets and faraway galaxies and solar systems that have other sheep, and Jesus is going to go save them too. Well, there's one verse that can debunk that false idea, and it's Ezekiel 34, 31. Look at what Ezekiel says there, talking about the sheep. He says, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. So these are not extraterrestrials that Jesus is referring to here. Another outlandish theory about the other sheep is actually put forward by our Mormon friends. They take this verse to refer to this fictional book right here. This is called the Book of Mormon. I was very careful when I walked in with this book on top of my Bible. I was covering the the title so nobody thought I was bringing in another testament of the Lord Jesus. It is not. It's fiction. So what the Mormon church teaches is that six centuries before Christ, 600 years before Christ, there was a lost remnant of the children of Israel known as the house of Joseph, and somehow they traveled by boat across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, uh, two millennia before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And they landed in North America, and they established what became a Native American tribe. And Joseph Smith, the leader of the Mormon cult, uh, says that Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, he actually revealed himself to this lost tribe of Israel in North America, and he named one guy Nephi, and he named 11 other apostles, and they were then known as the Nephites, and then that Nephite tribe of Israelites, who are also happen to be Native Americans, are the true followers, the true Mormons. Fiction. How do we know it's fiction? Because there is this much archaeological, historical, or textual evidence for any of those theories. Just a little plug for you, this Wednesday night, I'm beginning my uh, Grow University class for this semester called Cults and World Religions, and we'll probably spend a couple weeks on the Mormon group. I hesitate to call them a church. There are several other classes offered Wednesday. Look in your bulletin for their locations. Uh, 
So these uh, other sheep, they're not extraterrestrials, E.T., phone home. They're not these alleged Native Americans that are the lost tribe from the house of Israel. So who is Jesus referring to here with these other sheep that he's going to gather together? Well, two things I want us to see about this flock. First of all, it is a diverse flock. This flock that Jesus says he will gather together into one flock and one shepherd is a diverse flock. Jesus is coming for people beyond the nation of Israel. Now, I mentioned last week that the Old Testament, the, the thinking of the Jewish people was very closed. It was kind of like a cul-de-sac. Us four, no more. It's just the, the descendants of Abraham, the children of the covenant. And Jesus says, guess what? There are other sheep. There are other sheep. Uh, there's going to be a great ingathering of other peoples, of other nations, of other languages. In other words, the Gentiles. Paul described this coming together of a single flock under a single shepherd in Ephesians chapter 3. Notice what he says there. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles and Jews are all members of one flock, one body, under one shepherd. In fact, Jesus is predicting here what John, the author of this gospel account, would be given divine revelation of in the book, the book of Revelation. Notice what John writes in John chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is gathering together a diverse flock of people, of sheep, from every tribe and tongue on the planet. And today in a lot of organizations and corporations and universities, you will hear people talk about, this is kind of a new uh, area of corporate leadership, uh, people who are over diversity, equity, and inclusion. Who have heard these three words, these three terms, right? DEI experts. And corporations will have DEI experts, whole departments over DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, so that they can put out these mandatory trainings that you must go through so you can develop diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let me tell you who the first diversity, equity, and inclusion expert was. It was Jesus Christ. He is going to bring all people from all tribes, from all languages that will be diverse, it will be fair, and it will be equal for all mankind to come into this one flock that he will lord over. And he's not gathering them together, listen, to meet some diversity quota. Why is he gathering them together? because he deserves the worship from every person on the planet. And so he's gathering all people together. This is a diverse flock, but not only is it a diverse flock, but notice secondly, it is a definite flock. It is a definite flock. Look at the imperative statements he gives in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep. 
I must bring them. They will listen. There will be one flock. Jesus is completely confident that there is a definite flock. He's not just hoping for more sheep. He's just not wishing for this diversity of a flock. He says, I don't just have a strong desire. I know that I know that I know I'm going to have a definite flock of sheep. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples just hours before he was hanging on a cross? He quoted to them from the Old Testament. Notice what he said in Matthew 26, just before his arrest. Jesus said to them, to these closest, the 11 that were left, he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That doesn't sound very promising. Notice what he says next. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I want you to think about this. As Jesus is beaten beyond recognition, as he is hanging on the cross, suffocating in the fluid building up in his own lungs, and his 11 closest disciples have scattered because he's been struck on the cross. Was Jesus fretting over the future of this movement that he started? Was he concerned at all about how it was going to turn out? Is it going to work? No, he was not. He was not the least bit concerned because he knew that although they would temporarily scatter, he knew, one, they would be gathered in Galilee together. He knew, two, in 40 days, they would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could be witnesses of the gospel. And he knew, three, that gospel of which they would be witnesses would eventually come to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, I don't know what existed here 2,000 years ago, but it was probably just a cross path for cows. Buffalo, maybe. There was no Chattanooga. It was just rural mountains and trees. But Jesus knew there was going to be a flock here. Jesus knew there was going to be a spirit-filled flock here that he would empower as well to take this gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. He was not fretting over the future of this movement. He knew, I will gather my flock. This is a definite flock. What's so good about the good shepherd? He gives his life for the sheep. He gathers together his sheep. But here's the third thing as we move towards the conclusion. He grants salvation to his sheep. Jesus laying down his life and dying for the sheep and then sovereignly, definitely gathering together his flock of sheep. This all fulfills the overarching purpose of God to save, to save. His overarching purpose is to grant salvation for the glory of God. His purpose was that we would be rescued from our own sin from death, from hell. I want you to notice verse 18 again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I want you to underline that phrase. I have authority to take it up again. What did Jesus mean by that? He said, listen, 
if I have authority to lay my life down, then I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. Nobody spoke like this. Nobody talked like this. But here's what we know. What he meant by it is this. This is an ironclad certainty. I will be resurrected from the dead. This is an ironclad certainty that no grave could hold his body down. This is an ironclad certainty that the final enemy of death that took away my mother-in-law yesterday morning is defeated by Jesus. He is alive. So we have that promise that death has no hold on us because death, friends, had no hold on him. He says, if I have the authority to lay down my life, I have authority to raise it up again. And here's the beauty of the gospel. All who trust in him, all who believe in his name. Friends, not only have you been buried with Christ when you were spiritually baptized at the moment of your conversion, but friends, you will be raised with Christ to newness of life. Jesus described this very same promise four chapters earlier in John chapter 6. Notice what he, he says there. And this is the will of him, that's the Father, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But what's he going to do? Raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you miss it the first time, Jesus will raise up all who believe in him on the last day. What's so good about the good shepherd? He grants salvation to his sheep. And when he does that, he gives us resurrection power, resurrection purpose, and this resurrection promise that he will raise us up on the last day. I'm going to close this message by talking about someone that some of you may have heard of. He was a hymn writer of the middle to late 1800s, a fellow by the name of Ira Sankey. Ira Sankey, he was a music evangelist for the great D.L. Moody in the late 1800s. He was said to have had a deep, booming, baritone voice. Of course, back then, they didn't have microphones and sound systems, so you needed to have a deep, booming, baritone voice to lead a crowd of people in singing. Ira Sankey was from the North, and as such, as a young man, he fought in the Civil War for the Union Army. A few years after the end of the war, Ira Sankey was leading an music at an evangelistic rally with Moody, and he was leading the, the group in a song, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. When the service was over, a young man came up to Sankey and said, can I ask you a question? Sure. He said, did you fight in the Civil War? He says, yes, I did. I was in the North. And he says, did you happen to be at the Battle of Shiloh? And he says, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I was. And he says, during that Battle of Shiloh, were you leading some men in singing songs to the Lord around a campfire? Yeah, yeah, I was. Were you singing this song, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us? And he said, as a matter of fact, I was. And so the young man said, well, you don't know this, but I was there too. I was hiding in the dark. I was a Confederate sniper. And I had my gun aimed right at you. And friend, I never miss. But as you were singing, Savior like a shepherd lead us, I couldn't help but think the shepherd was protecting you in that moment. And so instead of shooting you, I lowered my gun and walked away. The young man said, you might say 
that song saved you that night. And Ira Sankey reached forward and embraced the young man and said, no, young man, the shepherd saved me that night. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, you have bought us, yours we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, you have bought us, yours we are. Jesus is the good, the beautiful, the attractive, the precious, the noble shepherd. And what makes him so beautiful? Because he's given his life for the sheep. He gathers together a flock of sheep from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And friend, he grants salvation to the sheep, to all who trust in him, who believe in his name. And I would ask you this morning, have you trusted in the shepherd? Is he the shepherd of your soul? Trust him today in what he's done, his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. And you can say with David, the shepherd king, the Lord is my shepherd. And that leads to my last thought. The shepherd of our souls will not lose any of his sheep, but will bring each and every one to full redemption.